look at whether a tool is going to have a positive impact on our organization, first we want to be data-driven and customer-obsessed, right? So we want to look at the data and understand, will we be able to measure the impact this is going to have? Where is it going to drive improvements in experience or productivity? Welcome to the Future of Collaboration mini-series. I'm Eli Woolery, Senior Director of Collaboration at Envision. And I'm Sophia Aldabe, Customer Success Director at Envision. Today, we're interviewing Brian Hope, Director of Unified Communications and Collaboration at VMware. In our chat with Brian today, we talk about the business impact of visual collaboration tools, the barriers to adopting AI-enabled platforms for large companies like VMware, and how he thinks about navigating the application ecosystem. We hope you enjoy our conversation today, and thanks for listening. At Envision, we're obsessed with helping teams do their best work together. With Freehand's intelligent canvas and smart workflows, teams are already working to maximize their productivity and remove all of those hurdles and silos that seem to stop us focusing on the real work. With Freehand AI, we're excited to help teams go further. You can reclaim all that time spent synthesizing brainstorms and messy work plans and focus on making impactful decisions. With a single click, you can summarize your ideas and bring teammates up to speed. Or take all of those great ideas and create a schedule of work. Take brainstorms and turn them into briefs. Or analyze sentiment, helping you read between the lines. To unlock true productivity, everyone on the team must be able to engage. That's why we're focused on making Freehand the easiest to use visual collaboration platform where Canvas connectors allow you to create and fine-tune AI prompts to fit your team's workflow. And templates allow you to flexibly deploy AI-enabled workflows across your teams. And at 50% the price of Miro and Mural, your entire organization can benefit from the productivity gains that AI introduces. It's time to supercharge your team's workflow. Try Freehand AI on Freehand at freehandapp.com. Brian Hope, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. We're very excited to have you. As we get started here, hoping you just tell us a little bit about your background and your role at VMware. And then we're going to just dive right into this app management maturity model that you recently shared on LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. So I am originally from Vancouver, Canada. I'm currently based here in the SF Bay area. And I've been at VMware for about 12 years. At VMware, I lead the unified communication and collaboration team to deliver on our mission of enabling colleagues to do their best work with frictionless and delightful products, experiences, and work practices. For the last several years, what this meant is helping VMware shift from being about 80% in office to 95% remote or hybrid. Throughout the course of this, we'll talk about the challenges and opportunities in hybrid work. But first, let's talk about, you made this interesting maturity model. That's actually something we've worked on before on our team around design maturity, but I think it's interesting to see it applied to app management. What got you interested in exploring and building out the system that you shared? At VMware, over the last years, we got really, really good at adding applications to our ecosystem. And as we took a step back recently, we looked at the complexity of the ecosystem and realized it wasn't sustainable to keep adding to it. And we actually need to start reducing the size of the ecosystem. That's a lot easier said than done. 
And so that led us to having to be very deliberate in how we structured our approach. And as I got into this and as we learned what worked and what didn't work, I started to develop this framework in my mind that I thought I want to share that and help other people benefit from the journey that we've been on. Because there were certain times where in this journey, I felt like we were just treading water. We'd get one application out and two more might come in. And I really felt that by having a maturity curve that took you through a logical step-by-step of getting your arms around your ecosystem, you're going to have a much greater chance of success. That's fantastic, Brian. Thanks for sharing that. I'm curious then, looking at your tech stack, when you think about adding a new tool to your organization, what is something that must be true for you to add anything? We're a little bit allergic to the concept of just adding something new. So first and foremost, we're always looking for what will it take out? And hopefully it's more than one-to-one ratio. For everything we add, we want to think about how many, you know, two, three, four, five different applications could have potentially take out of our ecosystem. Uh, and then we, we go through a really rigorous approach to deciding whether to onboard something, right? So first, is there a quantifiable need that isn't already served by another tool or process? Can we quantify that and like draw a boundary around it and measure it? Second, is it really critical to achieving our established business priorities? There's a lot of things we could do and we could add into our ecosystem or our portfolio but if it's not aligned to a company priority, we're really going to you know, take a, a hard look at that. For my team, especially, one of the things that we really want to make sure it supports is our mission to operate as one VMware. We are on a journey to become a SaaS company. SaaS companies have to operate without silos, completely horizontally left to right across the company. So we're looking for tools and applications that can help us on that mission rather than things that might be specific to individual BUs or individual teams. And then lastly, again, it's easy to onboard something, but then you have to run it and you have to operate it. And so we're always looking at, do we have a really good plan for that? Do we have the right people and resources lined up to actually make it be successful over the long run? If we zoom out a little bit and think about the next, uh, this, this is thinking broadly, but next five years, even maybe 10 years out in the future, assuming the economy swings back in a positive direction, which is what we're all hoping for. What are some of your top priorities or considerations? You mentioned the economy and whether or not the concerns in the economy are real or, or whether they're fear. I think we just have to leverage that because there's a perception of scarce resources and scarce resources force us to make better decisions, right? So tap into that concern about the economy in order to force decisions that maybe otherwise you would have put off. So I think it's actually working to our advantage. And over the next years, what I really see as trends in our ecosystem, the way we manage it is we're going to have fewer and fewer applications and we need to make much deeper use of the ones that remain. And they need to be much more tightly integrated so that work flows between these different tools and applications rather than than being trapped in silos. So I really see those as the trends. And then, of course, everyone's talking about AI, so I'd be happy to talk about where we see that coming in the mix as well. Um, Digging a little bit more into this topic of tool consolidation, as you're thinking about it, how do you determine if a tool creates a positive impact for a large cross-section of your organization? 
certainly, as you mentioned, there's the consideration of, is it replacing some maybe redundant tools, but what other things do you consider when you determine that? So when we look at whether a tool is going to have a positive impact on our organization, first, we want to be data-driven and customer-obsessed, right? So we want to look at the data and understand, will we be able to measure the impact this is going to have? Where is it going to drive improvements in experience or productivity? So we want to be data-driven. And we also want to be customer-obsessed. We want to talk to our internal customers and understand directly from them what's the need that they have and how might we serve that need. We want to make sure that we're not thinking that IT ourselves have all the answers in understanding whether something's going to be impactful or beneficial to the organization. Brian, we were talking a little bit before the interview here about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and anybody in tech, I think is pretty astounded with the progress it's made over the last six months. And it continues to, you know, do these amazing things. And I think it causes probably equal amount of hope and fear in any of us around like, what is our job going to look like five years from now? But I'm wondering in the present, how you all are thinking about bringing in AI tools, because I know there's some security concerns around them. Now with AI, first and foremost, there's multiple ways it may actually come into the ecosystem, right? So AI may get added into tools that we're already buying from our partners, right? It may get added in to our ecosystem as third-party add-ins that connect with those tools, like an add-in that might connect into our Slack, for example. Or it could come in as something where we develop and build around something like Azure OpenAI, where there's an API-driven access to AI, but there's no initial UI or, or, or capability. You have to build that. So there's multiple ways that we're looking at how it will come into the ecosystem. As we think about evaluating the right way to do it and what are the concerns and the risks for us, we're very conservative around privacy for one. So how are we going to ensure it's protecting the privacy of not only our company data, but our colleagues and whether it's their words, their voice, their face, how we make sure that we are addressing those privacy concerns. From a security perspective, how are we making sure that critical company information is remaining our property and remaining within our control, which kind of branches out into, well, how much do these models, these AI models, the LLMs, for example, how much do they get to use our proprietary comp company information to train their model versus keeping that to ourselves? So that's another consideration. And then lastly, we're very concerned about things like bias, the, the, the people aspect of it, right? Like can AI bring bias into the way that we conduct our business and, and how do we prevent that from happening? And also I've had a number of conversations that were very interesting for me about what's an appropriate use of AI. And the example I was talking to someone about recently was, you know, if I'm interviewing someone for a job, is it appropriate for them to use AI when they're answering the questions? Am I eventually going to be hiring people whose job is to just use AI tools to do their job? And I don't know the answer because you can't preclude AI from being part of people's tool set. It's going to be part of the tools people use to do their jobs. But how far do you go with that? And how much of a person's job can be them just leveraging AI? So I think there's fantastic conversations to be had there. And we're taking a very cautious approach to stepping our toe into how we use it. 
I think you very well summarized a lot of the issues surrounding the use of AI in the workplace today. As a follow-up to that, I am curious where you see AI making the most impact in terms of helping your teams do work in a better way. We've been talking to different partners and vendors out there in the market, looking internally and gathering feedback. And one of the biggest use cases that keeps coming up is summarization. So how do you take large volumes of data, data that might be unstructured, even in different formats, dump that into a bucket and have AI be able to summarize that back to you? You know, from a practical point of view, that could be really helpful when sales teams are transitioning from one account executive to another and having AI summarize a multi-year history of a customer's relationship with us. So I think that's really huge. Another area that I'm just sort of passionate about, I think, is image creation, using AI to generate images, because you can be so specific, it's so fast, you can, um, you can ask it to depict a very specific image, and then you can say, I changed my mind, I want that dog to be black instead of brown, and it'll just reproduce the image instantly. So image creation is an area that I think is really cool, and it's going to be interesting to see where that goes and how that gets used to perhaps replace, you know, full-blown photo shoots and uh, marketing and advertising production in the future. I find that really fascinating too. I've been playing around a lot with some of these portrait generation tools and, mm -hmm. you know, and doing some with my kids too. And there's these just like weird, crazy space scenarios that they spin out and things like that are just a lot of fun. I mean, we're talking a little bit about the impact of tools. And we were also talking earlier a little bit about silos. I think one of the things that we're hoping to accomplish with our tools like freehand is to break through the barriers and break through some of these silos and make work more collaborative. How do you think about the, the business aspect of things like visual collaboration tools or low no code tools where we're finding ourselves at the intersection of right now? I think that both of those categories you mentioned are, they're still in their early days. And so we're seeing early adoption. I think we've got the early adopters interested in using visual collaboration and, and low-code, no-code platforms. I think that they, the depth to which they're using them is still a bit superficial. There's a lot more capability in these platforms that people aren't using. And then I think there's a lot more of our colleagues that we can just get exposed to these tools, right? So I think we've got the early adopters, but I don't think we've really seen them leverage it to the full capability. And our colleagues need a lot of help to understand how these things actually fit into their workflow. It's a new type of category for them. It's a new capability. Speaking about new tools, when you are transitioning to a new tool, such as freehand or some new AI capability that you're trying to incorporate into your daily workflow, how do you handle some of the hurdles that come from that transition? There's definitely a lot of hurdles and it can be very challenging. The first one that you'll probably run up against is that everyone has an opinion about what the right tool is, right? And sometimes that opinion is factual. Sometimes it can be very emotional. We find in our research that certain audiences are emotionally attached to certain tools, even if when you compare them on a factual basis, they might be very equal or one better than the other. So just expect that and be ready to acknowledge it and manage through it. Another thing that's really, really important is make sure you actually understand how the existing tool is being used today. Not how you think it's being used, but go talk to your colleagues, find out how they're actually using it. And actually, this is a learning from our own experiences. Intentionally look for the corner cases that are where they're using something maybe for kind of like a, an off-menu purpose. Whereas if you try to 
replace that tool and you weren't aware of that corner case, now you're going to have a gap potentially in your new one. And then lastly, at, at some point, you're going to make a recommendation and it's going to be the tool that some people would have chosen and it's going to be a different tool than others would have chosen. And I think what's most important is that you involved them in that journey. Don't have IT make decisions as IT, bring the colleagues into the evaluation, into the decision-making process and really make it so that they were the ones that made the decision. Because then at the end, you can sell that to them and, and really message, you may not have gotten exactly what you wanted, but you are gonna get what you need to do your work. And the proof is in the pudding. We're here to show you that that's true and we're, we're th here to see it through to the actual outcome. Right. I'm curious about one more tools focused question before we shift over to hybrid work in, in the mission that's set for you by your leadership and your own goals that you're setting is the primary focus on the cost, like number of tools or the administration of their tools, are there other broader problems that are set help us boost productivity or, you know, something along those lines? I feel very fortunate with the leadership I have at VMware, where our decisions have almost never been cost driven. We really focus on experience. So are we delivering a frictionless and delightful experience to our colleagues? We're focusing on, are we helping them achieve the company priorities, such as operating as one company, you know, horizontally across the whole company. And then we typically use financials as a way to back up, you know, that rationale, but it starts with experience and achieving company goals. And then financials are kind of just supporting evidence almost. And I feel that we've been very fortunate to have leadership that supports that approach. Brian, our, our company Envision has been remote for a long time since its founding, essentially back in 2011. You know, at one point we were basically one of the larger tech companies out there that were fully remote. And I think even though that was the case pre-pandemic, we had a cadence of getting together pretty regularly with our teams or with a broader company. And that was really important. You know, the pendulum's starting to swing back a bit. Travel's still not at the state, obviously it was before, but in your experience, it sounds like it's a more or less hybrid situation at VMware. And maybe you can talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges and opportunities there. Yeah, at, at VMware, we did decide, you know, probably in the first year of the work from home COVID pandemic era, we did decide to shift to offering colleague choice and allowing colleagues to decide whether they wanted to be in the office or remote or a mix, a hybrid. We did go around and identify the limited number of positions that had to be on site, physically present in the office, but the majority of positions at our company, we shifted to allowing colleague choice. And as you mentioned, you know, we've gone from being 95% at home to now it's swinging back. We're starting to see people come in the office. We're seeing individual departments also establish their own team level agreements where they're making the decision as a department, you know, hey, our department comes in the office two days a week if you live near an office. And what we've also seen be successful is that when you do that, you have to make sure you include people who don't live near an office. And so we've allocated them some travel budget so that on a regular basis, they can come be on site with their colleagues. So I think my message is it's for most companies, you're not going to be all remote or all on site. You're going to fall somewhere in that spectrum. I think each company will try to find the right balance for themselves. And then individuals and teams will kind of add another layer of individual team agreements on top of that. 
That makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of organizations are trying something similar in this new environment. I would like to know from your perspective, what are the important pieces to helping collaboration continue to be smooth and streamlined in this hybrid environment when you have people adjusting to having folks in the office and at home? First, you do want to look at your tools and do we have the right tools to support remote and hybrid work? Not all tools scale or transition nicely out of the office into someone's home. So you do wanna look very practically at your tool set. But then you also wanna look at, are we helping colleagues understand the ways in which we work together, the behaviors that we want to see people exhibit? And that could be through having prescriptive work practices that you as a company say, this is how we work. It could be team level agreements where teams come together and say, this is how we work together as a team. We send instant messages, not emails, right? We document our processes in this platform, not this other one. So team level agreements can be a really important aspect of that. You have to remind people of the necessity to be inclusive of people who may not be in the room. Before the shift to remote work, there was an acceptance that someone who was remote on a Zoom, it was okay if they had a secondary experience. And that's not the case anymore. They need to be equally included in the experience, which I think from a technology perspective, we haven't actually figured out yet. One thing that we struggle with is visual collaboration again. If you have a hybrid meeting happening, some people in a room, some people remote, how do you bring a whiteboard, a digital whiteboard into that experience such that everybody can equally see it and touch it and interact with it? And we found that to be a particular example of where we've struggled so far. Not to plug our own tools because that's not the point of the show, but we have seen folks using freehand in that way where there will be a hybrid situation and folks, you know, both on Zoom and in the office can, can work together. Are there any rituals that you've seen teams have that help facilitate situations where it might be kind of a core group that's meeting in a conference room and then there's some folks that are coming in via Zoom? Yeah, some teams have decided that when they're joining a, a meeting where it's a mix of in-room and remote, that everybody logs in on their laptop that's sitting right in front of them. And then everyone is face-to-face -face with the camera and you have a very equal experience across everyone. So that's one thing that people have decided to do. We've also just seen people just transition away from having meetings and trying to do certain things asynchronously. Like So the asynchronous daily stand-up is really growing in popularity because it not only does it free you up from meeting time, but it puts everyone on a more equal footing because everyone's participation throughout the day is in the same format and they have the same level of inclusiveness in the conversation, whether it's on Slack or MS Teams or some other app. So that's another example of practices we've seen teams adopt. Speaking of meetings at VMware, have you all experimented with anything like, you know, no meeting Wednesdays? We currently have no meeting Fridays, which doesn't always end up being no meetings, but the goal behind it is to have a day for just heads down work. And I know there's been other tech companies that have adopted something like that. Is that something you've tried at VMware at all? Yeah, so we don't at a company level. One challenge that every company at VMware size and scale is gonna have is one size doesn't always fit all, right? So you can't pick a day and say no meetings on this day because there are certain departments that have to meet on those days. What we've done is empower different business units or organizations and teams to define their own practices as part of their team level agreements. You know, we've tried to advertise to teams how to create team level agreements. My organization, for example, we have 
in the UCC org, Unified Communication and Collaboration Team, we have Meeting Light Fridays. And it's not no meetings. It is don't have internal meetings within our team. If you need to have a meeting with someone outside of our team, with one of our stakeholders, with one of our colleagues, that's okay. But let's try to minimize the amount of meetings we have within our team on Fridays. And we've been doing this, I would say, for over a year. It's been extremely impactful. We've observed in the data, again, we looked at our data from, from Zoom, from Slack, et cetera, and we've observed a decrease in the amount of meetings happening on these days and an increase in the amount of focus time people have had. So absolutely, it's a practice I would recommend. It just might be something that's more at a team or org level rather than company-wide if you're a larger company. Brian, as we wrap up here, one question we like to ask our guests is, is there anything that's really inspiring for you right now? Any books or movies or podcasts, anything like that? It doesn't have to be work-related, but just something you could share with our audience. I have two particular things that I'm absolutely fascinated with, one of them being personal finance and one of them being cars and the transition to electric mobility. And so I'll focus on that. The transformation that we are seeing now, we're going to see with electric mobility and just reinventing the entire energy sector is fascinating to me. It presents an incredible opportunity for countries to rebalance the distribution of manufacturing across the globe to bring jobs that might have left. It's an incredible opportunity to wrestle some control of energy back from big oil. I think it's an opportunity to address the environmental concerns. And if you've driven an electric car, you might even agree that it's a better experience than driving a gas car sometimes, right? Not maybe in every, every instance, because I do love a stick shift on a twisty road. But I just think that that is kind of like a once in a century reinvention of an entire industry. These car companies are rebuilding themselves from the ground up. The energy sector is rebuilding and restructuring. It's more than just shifting to electric cars. It's really redeciding on our future around energy and energy independence. I just think it's fascinating and it's such an opportunity. And it's something that happens once every hundred years. It's fantastic. As a family, we've had electric cars since I think 2011, starting with a Nissan Leaf, which we finally remember had a something like a 60 mile range back in the day. So it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't huge, but it got us where we needed to go. And now we have you know obviously slightly more advanced cars. But I'm also on the list to get the F150 Lightning, which I think will be a fun yeah vehicle to have in the future because you can actually power your house with it, which is pretty cool. Related to that, so I also drive electric cars. I really admire what Ford has done with their electric programs for two reasons. One is the Ford F-150 Lightning shows just how well Ford knows their customers. They have really great product management and they have such a good understanding of what their customers really need and want from their vehicles, especially from their trucks. So I kind of admire how well they were able to introduce something that doesn't scare away truck owners, but really attracts them into that market. Um, and second, from a business transformation perspective, the willingness for them to separate the electric part of the company out into a new venture and to say, in order to succeed here, we need to overinvest in this new space and it needs to be able to be separate on its own and achieve that escape velocity. Fantastic book, by the way, to read called Escape Velocity if you want to learn about launching new businesses. And I just admire them having the courage to do that. It's not going to be easy. It's going to expose them from a financial aspect because it's going to shine a spotlight on just how much it's costing to make that transition. 
But I think that I admire those two things that they're doing really well. Absolutely. Not to plug another show, we may end up cutting this part of it, but we interviewed Sandy for she, who was in Ford's design lab. And she talked a lot about her work helping develop the lightning. And there was a lot of user research and prototyping and testing. And they clearly care a lot about, you know, the experience for the customer. So, so that's super wow. cool. Maybe awesome. we need to get back together again for a hybrid, <laughs> a hybrid podcast. Yeah, for sure. Follow up. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. It's wonderful having you. And we're really looking forward to sharing this with our audience. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you, Brian. I think we all learned a few things from our conversation today with Brian Hope. Thanks so much for listening and or watching the first episode of the Future of Collaboration brought to you by Freehand by Envision. For more episodes like this, follow us at freehandapp.com slash blog. That's freehandapp.com slash blog. At Envision, we're obsessed with helping teams do their best work together. With Freehand's intelligent canvas and smart workflows, teams are already working to maximize their productivity and remove all of those hurdles and silos that seem to stop us focusing on the real work. With Freehand AI, we're excited to help teams go further. You can reclaim all that time spent synthesizing brainstorms and messy work plans and focus on making impactful decisions. With a single click, you can summarize your ideas and bring teammates up to speed. Or take all of those great ideas and create a schedule of work. Take brainstorms and turn them into briefs. Or analyze sentiment, helping you read between the lines. To unlock true productivity, everyone on the team must be able to engage. That's why we're focused on making Freehand the easiest to use visual collaboration platform, where Canvas connectors allow you to create and fine tune AI prompts to fit your team's workflow. And templates allow you to flexibly deploy AI enabled workflows across your teams. And at 50% the price of Miro and Mural, your entire organization can benefit from the productivity gains that AI introduces. It's time to supercharge your team's workflow. Try Freehand AI on Freehand at freehandapp.com.